I'm Jake Watson, and this is a special episode of the Saints Unscripted podcast, where we take stories and characters from church history and immerse you in their world. This is Season 1, Faith Crisis. Back in the Whitmer home, Mary Whitmer and Joseph's parents sat chatting in a bedroom. Joseph burst into the room and threw himself down beside his mother, exclaiming, Father, mother, you do not know how happy I am. The Lord has now caused the plates to be shown to three more besides myself. They have seen an angel who has testified to them, and they will have to bear witness to the truth of what I have said, for now they know for themselves that I do not go about to deceive the people, and I feel as if I was relieved of a burden which was almost too heavy for me to bear, and it rejoices my soul that I am not any longer to be entirely alone in the world. Then Martin entered the room. He seemed almost overcome with joy and testified boldly to what he had both seen and heard as did David and Oliver. Joseph's family returned to Palmyra the next day, followed by Joseph, Oliver, and the Whitmers. Soon, eight other men would join the ranks of official witnesses of the Golden Plates. Christian Whitmer, Jacob Whitmer, Peter Whitmer Jr., John Whitmer, Hiram Page, Joseph Smith Sr., Hiram Smith, and Samuel Smith. It was a good mix of men. Some, like Joseph's father and his brothers Hiram and Samuel, Joseph knew better than the others. For example, Hiram Page was the husband of Catherine Whitmer. The couple did not live on the Whitmer property while Joseph was there. So Joseph's familiarity with Hiram must have been somewhat limited. Even those who did live in the Whitmer home, Joseph had only known personally for a matter of weeks before being selected as witnesses. And of course, after years of anticipation, it only seems fitting that Joseph's father and brothers be permitted to finally see the plates. About a week after the witness of the three, Joseph walked with the eight into an area near the Smith home where the family would often offer up their secret devotions to God. But for this singular witness, no prayers would be necessary. No angel would appear, no voice would be heard from heaven. With the eight gathered round, Joseph simply unveiled the plates. Contrary to the experience of the three, the eight were each permitted to personally heft and handle the plates. They saw the engravings on the plates, which appeared to them to be of ancient origin. We bear record, the eight later testified, with words of soberness, that the said smith has shown unto us, for we have seen and hefted, and know of a surety, that the said smith has got the plates. And we give our names unto the world, to witness unto the world that which we have seen, and we lie not, God bearing witness of it. Over the years, the various life circumstances of these men took many of them down different paths. Some died young, like Oliver Cowdery, Christian Whitmer, and Peter Whitmer. Some, like Martin Harris and David Whitmer, lived long lives. Some retained their memberships in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints throughout their lives. Many did not. But what did bind all of these witnesses together, no matter their circumstances, was their unfailing testimony of the Book of Mormon. 
Reading about the lives and the experiences of these men have caused me personally to wonder if some of these men knew beforehand about the trials they'd have to endure because of their testimony, and not just from people outside the church. Would they do it all over again? Each of them suffered through tremendous social pressure to renege on their testimonies. Some endured alienation and estrangement from Joseph Smith himself, and some faced literally the daunting end of a musket. For example, put yourself in the shoes of David Whitmer in the year 1833. By this time, the saints had begun to settle in Missouri, much to the chagrin of many Missourians who felt threatened politically, economically, and theologically by the Latter-day Saints. Soon, mobs started to break out and open violence towards the saints. On one particularly painful Tuesday, a mob of four or five hundred destroyed the church's printing press in Independence, Missouri, and forced several church leaders from their homes, including David Whitmer. Bid your families farewell, the mobbers told their prisoners, for you will never see them again. Swarmed by mobbers and at the point of the bayonet, the men were driven to the public square. Steaming buckets of black tar waited patiently while the mob stripped their prisoners naked. And in turn, sacks of feathers waited patiently while the mob coated their victims' bodies in the searing tar. Of course, tarring and feathering is not meant to kill, but to humiliate. The threat to kill would come next. The commanding officer called forward 12 of his men and ordered them to cock their guns and present them at the prisoners' chests and to be ready to fire when he gave the word. He addressed the prisoners, threatening them with instant death unless they denied the Book of Mormon and confessed it to be a fraud, at the same time adding that if they did so, they might enjoy the privileges of citizens. David Whitmer hereupon lifted up his hands and bore witness that the Book of Mormon was the word of God. The mob then let them go. This is just one rather extreme example of how David Whitmer publicly defended his testimony, but he was also quick to defend it privately, as were the other witnesses. For example, as the mob reigned triumphant in Jackson County, Missouri, Oliver Cowdery and a man named William E. McClellan discovered that the mob had promised a bounty of $80 to whoever would deliver either men to the mob on the following Tuesday. Fearing for his safety on the day before the deadline, McClellan met secretly with Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer in the woods near where Whitmer lived. With penetrating intensity, McClellan asked the men, two of the three original Book of Mormon witnesses, Brethren, I have never seen an open vision in my life, but you men say you have, and therefore you positively know. Now you know that our lives are in danger every hour if the mob can only catch us. Tell me, in the fear of God, is that Book of Mormon true? With a solemn expression on his face, Oliver Cowdery turned to McClellan. Brother William, God sent his holy angel to declare the truth of the translation of it to us, and therefore we know. And though the mob kill us, yet we must die declaring its truth. Brother William, God sent his holy angel to declare the truth of the translation of it to us, and therefore we know. And though the mob kill us, yet we must die declaring its truth. 
David, ever eager to bear his testimony, added, Oliver has told you the solemn truth, for we could not be deceived. I most truly declare to you its truth. Boys, McClellan responded, I believe you. I can see no object for you to tell me falsehood now, when our lives are in danger. I think David's words are important there. We could not be deceived. Because the witnesses were widely regarded as honest men in the communities in which they lived, many people who rejected their testimonies were compelled to believe that the witnesses had somehow been deceived. David's grandson, private secretary, and partner at the Whitmer Stables, George W. Swike, reported, I have begged him to unfold the fraud in the case, and he had all to gain and nothing to lose, but speak the word if he thought so. But he has described the scene to me many times of his vision about noon in an open pasture. There is one explanation barring an actual miracle, and that is this. If that vision was not real, it was hypnotism. It was real to grandfather, in fact. But even David was familiar with the suspicion that perhaps he'd obtained his witness of the plates under an altered state of mind. In 1884, a group of people had gathered at David's home in Richmond, Missouri to examine the manuscript of the Book of Mormon. Among those there was the son of Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith III. Also present was Colonel Giles, a friendly but rather skeptical Richmond military officer. Mr. Whitmer, he said, might it not be possible that you have been mistaken? Perhaps you were moved upon by some mental disturbance or hallucination, which has deceived you into thinking you saw the angel in the plates. David stood up. He drew himself to his full height and said, in solemn and impressive tones, No, sir. I was not under any hallucination, nor was I deceived. I saw with these eyes and I heard with these ears. I know whereof I speak. Everyone present, including the colonel, stood under the impressive silence which followed the emphatic declaration. It was almost as if they stood in the presence of the angel himself. While David's visitors made their exit that day, Colonel Giles remarked to Joseph III, It is somewhat difficult, Elder Smith, for us everyday men to believe the statement made by Mr. Whitmer. But one thing is certain. No man could hear him make his affirmation as he had to us in there and doubt for one moment the honesty and sincerity of the man himself. He fully believes he saw and heard just as he had stated he did. Oliver Cowdery married David Whitmer's sister, Elizabeth, in 1832. In 1838, Oliver separated from the church due to his disagreement with the outward government of the church. But in time, 1847 to be exact, Oliver rejoined the church. Just a few years later in 1850, at the age of 43, Oliver died of tuberculosis. Years later, Elizabeth wrote to her brother David. From the hour when the glorious vision of the holy messenger revealed to mortal eyes the hidden prophecies, which God had promised his faithful followers should come forth in due time. Until the moment when he passed away from earth, he always without one doubt or shadow of turning affirmed the divinity and truth of the Book of Mormon. Hiram Page, one of the eight witnesses, also suffered at the hands of the mob because of his faith. On October 31, 1833, 
An angry mob of some 40 Missourians attacked the settlement where Hiram and his family lived. Some Latter-day Saints scrambled into the surrounding woods for safety. Some didn't make it that far. The attackers surrounded Hiram Page's cabin and, using logs, smashed through every door and window at the same time. Hiram's wife, Catherine, and two children, John, age five, and Elizabeth, age two, were forced from the home. The assailants raised their rifles at the family and called out, Come on out, Paige! We'll be damned if we don't shoot every one of your family here. Out of options, Hiram had quickly thrown on some of his wife's clothing, hoping the disguise, aided by the darkness of the night, would do the trick. After the mob made their threat, a tall woman made her appearance from the home. With a child in her arms, Hiram's last child, one-year-old Philander. General Moses Wilson called out from the mob, Well, that woman there is too damn tall! The men quickly stripped Hiram of his disguise. What followed for Hiram was about as much of a beating as a man could take. The men commenced beating and pounding him with whips and clubs. General Moses later reported about 60 to 70 blows with pre-prepared hickory branches. Hiram begged for mercy. You're a damned Mormon! The mob hollered back. And we mean to beat you to death. The beating continued until one of the mob finally said, If you deny that damn book, we will let you go. Hiram responded, How can I deny what I know to be true? And thus the beating continued. When they thought he was about to breathe his last, one of the mob said, I believe the damn fool will stick to it though we kill him. Let us let him go. They tore the roof off of Hiram's home and moved on to the next family of Latter-day Saints. Hiram eventually recovered. The life path he chose eventually led him out of church activity in 1838. Nonetheless, in 1847, Hiram Page wrote to William McClellan, It would be doing injustice to myself and to the work of God of the last days to say that I could know a thing to be true in 1830 and know the same things to be false in 1847. To say my mind was so treacherous that I had forgotten what I saw. To say that a man of Joseph's ability, who at that time did not know how to pronounce the word Nephi, could write a book of 600 pages, as correct as the Book of Mormon, without supernatural power. Yea, it would be treating the God of heaven with contempt to deny these testimonies, with too many others to mention here. On one occasion, despite Martin's long-standing belief in temperance and sobriety, several of Martin's old acquaintances made an effort to get him tipsy by treating him to some wine. When they thought he was in a good mood for talk, they put the question very carefully to him. Well now, Martin, we want you to be frank and candid with us in regard to this story of your seeing an angel in the golden plates of the Book of Mormon that are so much talked about. We've always taken you to be an honest, good farmer and neighbor of ours, but could not believe that you ever did see an angel. Now, Martin, do you really believe that you did see an angel when you were awake? No, said Martin. I do not believe it. Gentlemen, what I have said is true from the fact that my belief is swallowed up in knowledge, 
For I want to say to you that as the Lord lives, I do know that I stood with the prophet in the presence of an angel, and it was in the brightness of day. John Whitmer, one of the eight witnesses, was excommunicated from the church in 1838. When the saints were expelled from Missouri later that year and into the beginning of 1839, John stayed behind. Another man who stayed behind to settle some of the church's affairs was Latter-day Saint Theodore Turley. On April 5, 1839, Theodore was taking care of some business in Far West when he was approached by eight men. One of those men was the infamous anti-Latter-day Saint Captain Samuel Bogart, who also happened to be the county judge. Another man in the company was none other than John Whitmer. The men presented Theodore with a copy containing what modern Latter-day Saints know as Doctrine and Covenants Section 118. Go ahead and read that, the men told Theodore. Gentlemen, I am well acquainted with it, he replied. It was a revelation received by Joseph Smith, prophesying that the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles would depart for their overseas mission from the Far West Temple site on April 26th, only a few weeks from that time. I knew that as a rational man would, would give up Joseph Smith's being a prophet and an inspired man? The man asked. He and the Twelve are now scattered all over creation. Let them come here if they dare, and if they do, they will be murdered. As that revelation cannot be fulfilled, you will now give up your faith. Theodore rose to his feet. In the name of God, that revelation will be fulfilled. And indeed, the apostles would later fulfill that prophecy by sneaking into Far West in the dead of night before departing on their missions. But at the time, the men confronting Theodore only laughed at his response, except for John Whitmer, whose head hung low. You had better do as John Coral is doing, the men said. He is going to publish a book called Mormonism Fairly Delineated. He is a sensible man, and you had better assist him. Gentlemen, Theodore replied, I presume there are men here who have heard Coral say that Mormonism was true, that Joseph Smith was a prophet and inspired of God. I now call upon you, John Whitmer. You say Coral is a moral and a good man. Do you believe him when he says the Book of Mormon is true or when he says it is not true? There are many things published that they say are true and again turn around and say they are false. Do you hint at me? Whitmer asked. If the cap fits you, wear it. All I know is that you have published to the world that an angel did present those plates to Joseph Smith. Whitmer replied, I now say I handled those plates. There were fine engravings on both sides. I handled them. Theodore probed further. Why is not the translation now true? Whitmer replied, I could not read it, and I do not know whether it is true or not. I find several aspects of this story to be particularly impactful. First, it shows how those who turned on Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon were received by antagonists. John Quarrel was of that sort, and is spoken highly of by the company of men confronting Theodore. John Whitmer surely would have been treated with the same attitude of praise if he'd decided to renounce his testimony. But even in this hostile, anti-Latter-day Saint environment, among men threatening to murder the leaders of the church should they attempt to return to Far West, 
All John Whitmer seems to be able to say is, yes, the plates are real, but at the time I couldn't read them, so who knows if the translation is correct. It's about the closest example I've been able to find of any of the witnesses actually denying their testimony at any time. And as you've already heard, it wasn't much of a denial. And of course, later records show that John's testimony of the Book of Mormon plates remained unquestionably intact. For example, about 18 months before John's death, he wrote to Herman C. Smith, I conclude you have read the Book of Mormon together with the testimonies that are thereto attached, in which testimonies you read my name subscribed as one of the eight witnesses of said book. That testimony was, is, and will be true henceforth and forever. When God does something miraculous, he doesn't always leave irrefutable evidence of those events for future generations, no matter how much we might want him to. But what God does leave behind are witnesses. We believe in the stories of Christ's miracles because the testimonies of the witnesses are recorded in scripture. We believe Jesus Christ died and came back to life three days later, not because science compels us to believe, nor because archeological research forces us to. We believe because we've seen the testimonies of those who witnessed it. Of course, for many, those witnesses are not enough. And people find other ways to explain these events. In modern times, the same rules apply. Witnesses have testified over and over again throughout their lives and despite their varying circumstances that Joseph Smith's golden plates were real. Martin Harris, David Whitmer, Oliver Cowdery, Hiram Page, Mary Whitmer, and her sons, Joseph Smith Sr. and his sons, Emma Smith and others. It is up to each of us to decide whether to believe those witnesses or not. Thank you again for joining us for a special episode of the Saints Unscripted podcast, where we take historical characters and stories and immerse you in their world. Special thanks to David Snell for being the researcher and writer of this episode. 